It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Swing and a drive. Right field and deep. Back goes Aquino. It's got a chance. Gone. Get out the tape measure. Long gone. Fly the W! Cubs fans, it's time to fly the W with Dustin Rhodes and Paul Crawley Jean. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast, season three, episode 12. We are under 50 days until opening day. Don't forget to listen, download, review, and most importantly, subscribe to the podcast. Follow on all the socials, Fly the W670 on Twitter, Instagram, Fly the W on Facebook. Email us at flythew670gmail.com and get your email answered right here on this podcast. Crowley, hope you're having a uh, good week. We are a couple sleeps away from the uh, the big game, and then uh, you will get all my focus back on our Cubs. Oh, yeah, the, the, the big game. Call it what you will, but, I, the, the, you know, opening day, spring training, I mean, all this stuff has gotten me absolutely crazy. I'm, I'm ready for this little game to be done, and then we can get rolling. All right. So last weekend on Inside the Clubhouse, Cubs general manager Carter Hawkins was a guest with uh, Bruce Levine. David Hall was off again. I think he might be coming back next week, but uh, it was uh, Bruce Levine doing all the talking and all the interviewing, and he does a great job booking that show. Uh, Carter Hawkins, his guest, and you and I have gone through it and pulled out what we thought was the most important stuff in case our listeners missed out on that. Yeah, I mean, seriously, you got to listen to Inside the Clubhouse 9 to 11. Just such good baseball talk, especially if you're somebody that just is jonesing for some baseball. So I think that it was uh, Bruce Levine and it was Mike Esposito. That's was, right, uh, Mike Esposito. Yep, mm-hmm. pinch hitting. Good, yeah, pun, in, yeah, pun intended. Pun intended. And so he comes in there. And, you know, one of the first questions that was posed to Carter was about Michael Bush. You know, as we sit here waiting for Cody Bellinger, you know, the question is, is what if they don't sign him? That's that's a possibility. And so Michael Bush would probably be first man out of the gate. He was acquired with reliever Yancey Almonte for Jackson Ferris and Zaire Hope. Uh, here's what Carter had to say about Michael Bush. But looking at our current roster, you know, we were had some opportunities for at-bats at first base, opportunities for at-bats at third base. And we got guys that you know, are currently on the roster that have played well in those positions, but nobody that solidified that. And um, we're also looking for guys that can hit left-handed. So you check first, third, left-handed ability to be here for a long time. And, and Michael Bush is kind of in the middle of that Venn diagram. He hasn't played a ton of first, but his ability over there is, is really, really solid and feel like his hands and, and just know how will, will help 
had that opportunity to to be really really good over there and he has you know totally dominated the minor leagues over the course of his career but he was blocked you know he was with the Dodgers and then they have a couple of Hall of Famers at, at first and second he can also play second um, that uh, obviously are going <laughs> to get in his way of the bat and so you know, we think that he's a potential you know great member of our lineup that 100% can hit against righties and, and hopefully can can play every day at some point. But we have you know, basically six years of control over him, um, so he's going to be a, have a chance to be with us for a long time. And looking forward to that. I like the Michael Bush Venn diagram, right? Lefty uh, plays first, all that stuff. But you know, Dustin, there was there was a line in there that kind of took my attention. It said 100% he can hit against righties and hopefully play every day at some point. I went and I pulled the numbers. Bush played in 125 games last season. He was splitting time between the big league Dodgers and their minor league affiliate in Oklahoma. In 98 games in AAA, Dustin, he slashed 323, 431, 618 with 27 homers and 90 RBIs. His walk rate was 13% and his strikeout rate was 18%. I mean, those numbers are off the charts. But Very good. Yeah, very good. In 27 starts in the major, he was 167, 247, 292 with two home runs and seven RBIs. Walk rate went down to 9% and the strikeout rate jumped up 33%. Dustin, there's nothing Michael Bush can get out of AAA anymore. This is kind of, he has an opportunity to be an everyday big leaguer or at least platoon. But this this to me is his opportunity right now. What's he, there's nothing, like I said, he can do in AAA anymore. No, it's, uh, you know what they say, the old, uh, you know what, or get off the pot time for a guy like this, right? He, he was blocked in LA with the Dodgers. So it makes all the sense in the world. Dodgers were, I guess, good enough, if you will, to uh, uh, let him spread his wings, hopefully. And he's going to do that over at Clark and Addison. So we're going to find out, right? I mean, we're going to find out. He's not a kid. He, he's not a kid anymore. He, he's done everything he can do there. Uh, it is either, you know what, or get off the pot. Yeah, his splits in AAA, he slashed 337, 445, 708 versus righties. There's no question he had uh, no problem with righties in minor leagues. He had 25 home runs and 68 RBIs versus lefties, though. He slashed 294, 401, 429, but then you only get down to two home runs. So 25 versus two and 22 RBIs. So, Dustin, I'm just thinking for the time being, you got Patrick Wisdom and, you know, his splits are the opposite. So, you know, when, when, you're facing a good lefty. Let Patrick Wisdom take the at bats, and then Bush can take most of the starts against righties, and he's going to be fine. Yep. I mean, that make right right now, based on the construction of this roster, that I'm sure everybody's not thrilled about. What you're saying makes total sense. Yes. Now, the obvious 800 pound gorilla in the room that they talked about on Inside the Clubhouse was Cody Bellinger, and obviously, we all are waiting around and and and. Carter wants you to know that they aren't just sitting on their hands here. Yeah. I mean, I think generally you, you've taken a step away from, or taken a step back on just any free agent acquisition. And we, we talked about this a little bit so around CubsCon, and, and, you know, have, have certainly, you know, had this come up often as, you know, whether our, our pace has been perceived to be slower, faster, or, or anything of the sort, but, you know, it's basically trying to, to find overlap, you know, our, interest in terms of how we view a player and the player's interest in terms of how he views himself. And when there's overlap on, on those two things, deals get made when there isn't deals don't get made. And sometimes that's a long, long process. So, you know, I, I think generally we just try to take, 
our focus towards that versus all the things going on around us. And that typically leads to good decisions. Um, and that's the idea is make really good decisions because really good decisions are going to help us win more games in the alternative and uh, just try to focus there. So that's where Jed and I are on a day-to-day basis. Um, just because there's not deals being made doesn't mean that we're not working the phones every single day and then, you know, working on you know, trying to find those overlaps every single day. We, we certainly are. Um, but we understand that the fans want to see the results and we get that, but we just try to stay uh, focused on our process and what we can do and what we can control. Working the phones every single day, like Dustin Rhodes on the Mully and Haw show. Um, you know, <laughs> when, when they talk about the overlap, you know, he said our interest in how we view a player and the player's interest in how he views himself. And of course, Scott Boris is in that conversation. And a lot of people are saying, you know, the Cubs are going to sign one of the the big four Boris clients left. You're talking about Chapman. You're talking about Montgomery. And obviously you're clearly talking about Cody Bellinger. But again, at what price? And and I, you know, if, if you are talking about $230 million or north of $200 million for Cody Bellinger after one year of, of a really successful year at Wrigley, that's that's a huge leap of faith that you're taking there. Oh, big, 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 big leap of faith, Crowley. And, and so I don't, you know, I understand where this is coming from. If, if, if they're asking for that much, I just, you know, and, and again, don't paint yourself in a corner. You don't outbid yourself if the Blue Jays want to get desperate. But when you get desperate, that's when you sometimes make some bad decisions. And, and you know, I'd love Cody to be back on a five-year, $160 million deal, but six years at 230? Yeah, it's a little know. it's a little pricey. The other thing I heard today, listening to lots of different things like I do, is that the Cubs have negotiated with Boris and Bellinger. Like they they, they have given kind of their last and final, if you will, because I guess Boris is known as the type that if he gets something better that he likes from Toronto, let's say, he's not going to come back to the Cubs and say, "Oh, by the way." Toronto offered this. What say you? Like, he's just going to go to Toronto. So the Cubs have to know that they've kind of made last and final and best in this situation. If that's true, that that's how Boris handles things. Yeah, wait and see here. Working the phones. But uh, Carter was asked about Shota Imanaga. And for those of you following me on Twitter, at Carly's Cubs, you know our guy, Rich Biesterfeld, with the first photos of Shota in, in Mesa. Um, so, and, and Justin Steele on Twitter had some positive things to say. So this is getting, uh, I'm getting more excited about Shodi Managa and this is what Carter had to say. Yeah. I mean, I think every team in the league for any starting pitcher says, all right, I have some interest because he is a starting pitcher. And so that was right. the first box to check with, with Shota. I mean, it's just the, the availability of, of good innings in this league is, is, it's just tough to find. And, you know, when you have that, it's, it's like gold. And then to have somebody that's left-handed that's shown that have that ability, you know, in the, the Japanese professional leagues to, to be an ace and a pitch mix that, you know, hopefully will apply to, to the game here in the States and uh, the mindset and the work ethic to make the adjustments that are necessary, you know, when you, when you make that transition. We saw that. You know, obviously with Saya, um, just having to make some of those transitions, it's not easy. You know, it happens, you know, at different times. Sango with the, the Mets had a really good year last year, his first year. And so don't want to rule out, you know, being elite in your first year. But at the same time, you know, you can imagine 
transitioning not only from one league to another, but from one country to another and then one culture to another. And that's, that's hard. So you want somebody with that mindset of, of trying to improve. And I guess you kind of saw a little bit of that uh, in the press conference, that mindset of like, okay, like what can I do to relate here? What can I do to, to really you know, endear myself? And, and hopefully he's able to do that on the field too. So he says, you know, the availability, the availability of good innings in this league, it's hard to find. And when you have it, it's like gold. Dustin, the one thing about Imanaga is in the Japanese league, he always was throwing close to 140 to 170 innings year after year, uh, starting in 2016. So, you know, I, I think that the era of, of Fergie Jenkins throwing 200 innings, that, that just doesn't happen as much as we would like it to with the idea of not going more than three times through the order and all this stuff. I mean, I think, you know, I was a little bit nervous and we'll see, we'll see how the Cubs play this, but it, you know, his durability seems to be something that really has benefited him. Yeah, definitely durable. I, I, I don't, I, I don't want to go here, but do you feel like there's a little bit of excuse making? I, I wasn't necessarily thrilled with that answer saying like, you know, Hey, you know, we got to give the guy a break and uh, no, 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 this is, this is the Cubs. This is Chicago. This team is trying to win the division and play in October. Why are we, why are we setting the bar way down here? I'm not saying it's got to be way up here, but how about somewhere in the middle? It just seemed, just seemed like, you know, to tap the brakes, you know, culture and changing locations and it's tough and blah, 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 blah. Okay. We, we've talked about this before. Am I overreacting? I, to, am I overreacting to that comment? No, or I think it's, I hear what you're saying. And I, I understand what Carter's saying. I think that the difference is that with uh, Seiya Suzuki on the team, I think it's going to alleviate because Seiya was navigating that all by himself, right? He's got the, sure, interpreter, but where, but where, where, where was that comment? Did, did I miss that comment? I, I would, I think that it's going to help having Seiya there. Now, right, it's right. Just, I it's, agree with you hundred percent. Why didn't, why didn't right. Carter say that? Like, why don't Carter say that? I mean, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, maybe did not put extra pressure on, say, a Suzuki. Maybe. I'm just saying. I just don't. I, I think more than anything, you just take a look. And it, it is it's an adjustment in a lot of different ways. And just to kind of, you know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and I've seen that before. You know, sometimes it translates well. And sometimes it doesn't. So if you're expecting him to be the ace of the staff, he was never an ace as far as when, when we were considering the offseason, right? We were talking about um, Yamamoto. We were talking about Otani. Imanaga is going to be a really good pitcher, but I think that just kind of tempering expectations, and, and who knows, he might surprise you. Might, yeah. and, and So that's what I'm hoping for. Now, Bruce did bring up the six-man rotation. Um, the Mets were very deliberate with Kodai, and they gave him a rest when they felt necessary. And I thought with the Cubs pitching depth, that might be considered, but, uh, you know, Carter will go on to say that, you know, they're going to go with something a little more traditional. But I just wonder, Dustin, how long it's going to be until you start to see more of those six-man rotations popping up. Um, the next question asked um, was about what Carter in the front office expect from PCA after his cup of coffee last season. Yeah, I mean, looking to, to see some of the adjustments uh, from – the challenges that he faced, you know, those definitely created some opportunities for him to make some changes that'll help him to, you know, be a little bit more effective offensively and, and on the base pass and make a little bit better decisions there and, and utilize the strengths that he has. You know, in order for him to 
get the speed to, to actually produce major league value. He's got to get on base and to get on base, he's got to make contact and, you know, take balls out of the zone and things that he did really well in the minor leagues. And clearly it was a small sample in the big leagues, but um, it was a, a big opportunity for him to see the things that, that he needs to do. So he's working his tail off in Arizona this whole off season, working with Dustin Kelly, our hitting coach, you know, on those things. And, um, you know, defensively, he's got some, some natural skills there that, you know, we're looking forward to see him play here at, at, at some point. But the expectation is just to see the work that he's put in and then continue that work and continue that development for him so that he can be the type of major leaguer that we all know he can be. So the one thing that stood out to me on that one is just, you know, he has to be more effective offensively and on the base pass, make a little bit better decisions and utilize the strengths he has. I like the fact that he's out in Arizona and he's been working with Dustin Kelly. Obviously, that's going to help. But Dustin, I feel like people have overreacted to a very small sample size of PCA last year. He made his debut in Colorado last season. He appeared in 13 games, Dustin, and he was hitless in 14 at-bats. But out of those 13 games, he only started three of those. In five games, he did not have a single at-bat. and four games, he only had one at-bat. So, I mean, it's really, really hard that's why they don't want pitchers facing guys a fourth or a fifth time through the order. So if you only see a guy once, how can you make adjustments? You get what I'm saying? Right. I I, I mean, it was a very small you, – you did the cup of coffee reference. That was a good one. But it was a very small cup of coffee. It was kind of like an espresso, right? You know, maybe with your pinky out when you're having little that cup. little you – know, the little <laughs> cup. I mean, that's how quick it was. And he had a few spectacular defensive plays. He mm-hmm. also had some spectacularly bad – trips on the bases mm-hmm. and he was asked to bunt a whole bunch not swing away he was asked to bunt um not that you can't get a bunt down but i i, I don't think that craig council is going to be asking him to bunt and i think it, 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 later on when somebody does a deep dive as to why david ross and the cubs finally broke up a uh, bunting might be in the top three reasons it, it, too too much bunting might be might be in the top three reasons why david ross isn't the manager of the chicago cubs anymore I think bunting played a, a factor in it, but but remember Craig during CubsCon mentioned he'd like to see PCA bunt. So I think it's more bunting with the right guys in the right situation. You don't do it with, in the seventh inning with Patrick Wisdom. No, that, that doesn't happen. But he mentioned PCA being a lefty and being super fast. Patrick Wisdom is not a lefty and he's not super fast. And so PCA making contact and getting on base is where he's going to give you the best offensive bang for your buck. And, you know, once he, you know, in defense, if he's going to absolutely be worthwhile for you to keep there. Um, so I, I just like, you know, here's the thing. PCA has the, the just an uh, obscene amount of God-given talent. I've, I went to go see him in different minor league ballparks. But when you get to the major leagues, everybody is phenomenal. And I saw him, like you said, a couple of times. He gets, he gets, you know, picked, you know, he got caught stealing twice. He, you know, and so he had two stolen bases is caught stealing twice, but you know, I think that kind of surprised him. So I think he's going to learn from that. It's not just going to be speed. That's going to help him. He has to be able to read the, the pitcher's movements and, and those, and when to uh, what kind of lead to get. And those type of things are going to be a lot more important in the majors than they were for him in AAA. He could have stole off anybody in AAA. It wasn't a big deal. Not going right. to happen that way in the majors. Right. Kind of the same thing. What we talked about with the, with the first question, right. Of this, of this segment, we're breaking down the interview right? The Cubs new first baseman. There's nothing left for PCA to do in the minor leagues, in my opinion. There really isn't, except probably learn how to hit a little bit better. But Mm -hmm. I mean, hopefully they get Bellinger back and you can have that, uh, 
that luxury, if you will. Yeah, good transition, right? Speaking of transitions, the last question yeah. from this interview was about the workload between Jan Gomes and Miguel Amaya. Great question by by Bruce. You know, here's the thing: it is is Amaya going to start taking more of the workload? And what Carter replied. Yeah, I mean, I think kind of naming who's going to catch 100 and who's going to catch 60 probably isn't smart at this point. But what I will say is that you know Miguel, he's out of options. You know, he's going to be on our major league club. You know, barring injury and. You know, this is an opportunity for him to really step up and really be a part of the leadership of this team. And, and there's no better person to learn that from than Jan Gomes. So 100% on that is he has no option. So if you're going to, if you're going to cut him, he has to go through waivers, which he's not going to make it through. They're not, they're not, and, yeah, and they're not going to do that. They're, they're not right. Gonna, they're not going to drop him down. It's just not going to happen. The, these, these are your two catchers for the 2024 season. This is, these are your guys. There's no, there's no doubt about it. No doubt now, about it. And I think Jan Gomes is a great guy to have as a mentor. I'll tell you this, Dustin. Jan Gomes shocked everybody last season. He slashed 267, 315, 408 with 10 home runs and 63 RBIs. He caught 92 games and played 10 as a DH. But, Dustin, he's going to be 36 this season. And that that offensive performance was an anomaly. That's not the normal Jan Gomes. We, we got lucky on that one. Now, after not playing for most of the last three years because of injury and COVID and all sorts of things, Amaya makes an amazing comeback in 2023. He started with the Smokies, makes his debut May 4th when Gomes was on the aisle with a concussion, sent down May 11th, but then he was back up on June 3rd where he stayed. Tucker Barnhart was showed the door. He slashed 214, 329, 359 with five homers and 18 RBIs. He started 33 games at catcher and DH'd another eight games. But as a 36-year-old catcher, I mean, Amaya is going to have to take more of the load and Again, like PCA and like Michael Bush, this is his opportunity here to make a name for himself and to become an everyday major leaguer. Yep, and that's what I look. I look forward to it. I, I really, I like him a lot. I, I, re, I really, I like him a lot as a player. And the pitchers like throwing to him, so let's just kind of keep our fingers crossed. Yep, that's a big part of it. There's no doubt about that. You got to keep those pitchers happy. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast. This is episode 12 of season three. Crowley, we are 50 days or less to opening day. Unbelievable. Don't forget to download. Don't forget to listen. Don't forget to subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. And don't forget to leave those five-star reviews. Well, in this segment of the show, we have Dan Cantrevis talking to Crowley. 
Joining me now on the Fly the W podcast, I'm glad to have back our old friend Dan Kantrovitz. He is the Vice President of Scouting for your Chicago Cubs. Dan, how are you today? I'm, I'm great, Carl. Just uh, as I was mentioning earlier, bouncing between uh, a few uh, different uh, points, a few different games. So uh, already on the run, but uh, it's, it's, you know, not getting old. So uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting cold, but not old. Yeah. Well, first off, big congratulations to you and your team. As you know, MLB Pipeline released their top 100 prospect list and the Cubs topped all 30 MLB teams with seven prospects in the top 100. That had to make the team feel real good, huh? Yeah, I, you know, it's it certainly can't be a bad thing. Um, and, I, you know, we had our scouts in town uh, for our January meetings last week. And, um, you know, I think that was one of the things I said when I was just giving the meeting kickoff. But, the, you know, then the other thing I quickly said was, you know, that's sort of what we've done up to this point. Uh, and, and it doesn't mean, you know, that we're going to keep having success going forward, uh, you know, without a pretty concerted effort to, to do so. Um, so, you know, I think we probably allowed us, uh, you know, 15 seconds to sort of pat everybody on the back and say, you know, nice job. And but now it's looking ahead and, uh, you know, making sure that everybody keeps grinding. Um, but, yeah, it's never a bad thing, I think, to have a lot of prospects and, uh, you know, in those third party rankings. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, um, you know, I think, you uh, you know, there's a lot of other good systems out there that, uh, you know, uh, might uh, not get the attention uh, from you know, third party wise that, uh, um, you know, we got to make sure that we stay ahead of and, uh, um, you know, aren't getting complacent. Absolutely. Now, before we talk about any individual players, uh, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about how the drafting process goes. The 2024 draft will be during the all-star festivities around July 16th. So after the 2023 draft ends at what point do you guys start looking towards the 2024 draft yeah you know the way things are set up now um you know they used to have a few years ago we had the draft in june and then they moved it to july um we're actually starting to evaluate what we call our platform year plus one players even before the draft so it's not a situation where you know it's just sort of tunnel vision uh on this year's class until the draft and then all of a sudden we uh, hit reset and go to next year's class. We actually are starting to evaluate next year's class, um, you know, probably a month or two even before the draft starts. Um, I mean, there's events that, you know, show us uh, players that are eligible for the draft in even two or three years, but, uh, and, and, you know, we're recording notes, we're evaluating them. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think it really starts probably until a month or two uh, before, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the coming draft. Um, you know, and then I think the signing deadline is probably a real good line of demarcation where we just you know, sort of put the current year behind us and say, now it's just looking straight ahead to you know the next year's draft. Now, you talked about your scouts a little bit earlier. Each scout has their own re region that they have to cover around the country. Is that right? Yeah. So the way that we're set up is we have roughly 40 domestic scouts in the United States, um, including Puerto Rico. Um, and, and so, you know, we have roughly 15 area scouts that are responsible for, um, yeah, in some cases, two or three states. In some cases, if it's a highly concentrated state, maybe just a small part of a state. Um, and then the next layer we call our regional coordinators. And their job is to really just sort of quarterback that region, um, kind of be the air traffic controller of 
you know, all the information that we're acquiring on players, all the information that we still need to acquire on players, um, and really helping develop and, and bring the area scouts along uh, just from a professional development standpoint. And then on top of that, we have another layer, the national cross-checking layer. We have four of those. Um, and, you know, they're real, they're just extremely critical to just sort of the, you know, boots on the ground, just pure evaluators. You know, they'll go in and evaluate probably 200 players every year and turn in those uh, and submit reports on them uh, and just end up having probably the most calibrated opinions just because they end up seeing the most players. But uh, so area scouts, regional coordinators, national cross checkers, um, a few folks in the office who are critical to everything we do, uh, and, and then myself. Wow. So you got all your bases covered, so to speak, but you know, you came from, you know, you were in St. Louis for a little bit, you were in Oakland for a little bit, but your first draft with the Cubs 2020, one of the weirdest drafts in history with COVID creating complete havoc on the process. How would you say the drafting process has evolved for you with the Cubs since 2020? From a process standpoint, I think we've, um, you know, evolved pretty substantially and, you know, it's been a, um, it's been a gradual process each year. We try to make some, some tweaks and some improvements to what we're doing, um, both from sort of a draft day, um, decision-making process, as well as sort of just the, you know, the, the scouting process leading up to it. Um, but you know, I, I don't think it's been, uh, uh, you know, I expect us to probably have the same sort of similar, just continuous improvement going forward as we've had the last few years. Now, MLB recently has implemented new rules, no shifts, making the bags bigger to increase stolen bases. Has that had a big impact on how you scout certain players? I don't think it's had a big impact on how we scout players. Uh, I think, you know, at times you see some of those macro trends. Um, you, know, sort of, you see them sort of rear their heads in the, the college game um, in terms of just strategy. And then maybe that starts to influence some of the performance statistics that we're collecting. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, from an influencing our scouting standpoint, no, it's, it's, it's still just going out there and um, trying to evaluate current tools and, and, and project those into the future and, um, you know, try to figure out who's going to be a big leaguer. And then, uh, you know, if, if, if the game, if, if their tool set uh, is reliant, on, on just some strategy changes and, you know, we're probably, uh, you know, overvaluing, you know, that player a little hot, too high. So MLB network has a show during the winter meetings and they, they reveal the pick you're going to have, yeah. right. They've changed it up a little bit. Andre Dawson's there representing the Cubs, the Hawk. Were you there during that process in the winter meetings or, or where were you? Were you watching it in real time or does it not really matter if you're drafting 14th versus 17th? No, it, it, it matters a lot. Um, I just, you know, it just, doesn't really matter where you are when you're watching that that show because there's nothing you can do about it to, to influence the outcome. Um, so where I was is I, you know, I was at the winter meetings, uh, you know, with the the rest of our staff, and we we're all there's probably 20 of us or so. We were watching uh, uh, it unfold on MLB TV just like everybody else uh, up in our suite, um, and you know I probably was sweating a little bit more than you know some of the other people in the room. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I felt like probably the the best way to um, to, to, to handle what, uh, you know, we, any, any news that we might get would be with, you know, the, the rest of the group. Uh, that would be fun. You know, and, and it's funny because obviously some of us have watched the movie like uh, Moneyball or we've seen draft day with the football and all that stuff. Yeah. When you're, when you're, when you're getting to that week of the draft, you're setting up your board. Uh, now it's all the scouts I'm assuming are the pitching and hitting directors there. And does everyone kind of speak up and say who they think you should pick when it comes to your time? 
Yeah, so I think something that we try to do is, um, you know, minimize any sort of audibling or pivoting that, you know, we, we have to do in the moment because there's just so much going on. You know, so, so many calls with agents, so many calls with, with our scouts uh, reacting to what other teams are doing. So to the extent that you can, you know, prepare ahead of time and sort of weed out anything that you might end up having to do during the draft, and just make that process a little bit smoother and streamlined. Um, you know, we do. So I think one of the things that we try to do well in advance now is have those discussions, um, you know, with our scouts, uh, with our analysts, with our front office, um, you know, a few weeks even before the, the draft, um, sometimes even a month before. And so we, you know, we break up into regions and have regional meetings. And it's kind of this like traveling roadshow where you'll go to, you know, the West Coast one day, the next day you'll be in the, the Midwest meeting with, you know, our group of scouts there, the next day in the Southeast with our group of scouts there and so forth. Um, and then we'll aggregate all that information, um, making the adjustments that we need to make to our uh, to our model, uh, make sure that we have all the information we need going into the draft. And then I'll meet with the executive leadership group, um, you know, a few days before the draft you know, explain to them sort of what things look like um, for where we're at on certain players, what sort of pieces of information we might still need, um, you know, how they can help in terms of acquiring maybe signability information through certain agents, what they're hearing from other teams. Uh, and then going into the draft, you know, you'd like to sort of be on autopilot. Uh, it never uh, ends up being that easy and, 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 and that smooth because there's just always things you need to react to in the moment. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the sort of the, the you know, the, the scene of like it being this chaotic, you know, hey, take this player, take that player. That's not quite how it is um, anymore, but it's it's still there's still a lot going on in just the gravity of every decision is, is, is so important. And, uh, you know, that's that's what makes it so much fun, too. I can imagine now you see, you guys seem to have a lot of luck or I don't want to say luck. You guys seem to do a really good <laughs> job of drafting players in the later rounds. I'm looking at Frankie Scalzo, BJ Murray was in the futures game, Brody McCullough, Hayden McCreary. Is it, would you, you know, do you find it to be a little bit more tricky to draft players later in the draft? How is that compared to like, say picking in the earlier rounds? So the stakes are different in the sense that you're, not spending four million dollars on on one of those players but at the same time you know with a 20 round draft every player we draft is is, is critical and every, we treat every single draft with uh, you know uh, um uh you know with, put a lot of focus on every single pick and and so i don't think just because somebody is a 15th round pick anymore means that they're any less important than somebody we took on you know the the previous day say on day two um but you know i think the reality is you end up having a little bit less information as you so as you go down that kind of draft curve from the first pick to the you know as you get into the thousands um and 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 the 20th round so i think you know the information becomes a little bit less as you sort of get to that area and your confidence and and sort of your evaluation might be a little bit less um but at the same time um you know we, we end up having so much information on players these days that uh um, we're as excited about some of those guys as we are, you know, about some of our earlier picks. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely some, you know, it, it helps to have luck on your side, um, but it also helps to have good scouts and a good process. And, um, you know, if you have all those three things sort of meshed together at the right time, then you can come up with uh, hopefully some, some pretty good picks. 
Nice. Now, once a player is drafted and they've kind of gone on their way in their pro career, how much do you, communication do you have with some of those players? Do you see them around in the minors at all? Yeah, um, see them in the minors, see them at, at the affiliates, see them at spring training, um, frequently texting with them throughout the, uh, the, the season, even the offseason. Um, there's a little quiet period now where we can't really uh, talk to them. That's, you know, a, a couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, you get so close with these guys that, um, you know, you, you end up, um, you know, I was, I was telling uh, one of our pitching coaches just the other day when, you know, when you're watching them, whether it's in person, whether it's on, you know, uh, on MILB TV, I mean, you feel like, um, you know, you're, you're part of their family. You feel like almost their dad at times where, you know, if they get a bad call, you know, you're, you're, you're angry <laughs> because, you know, things didn't go their way. And um, you become a, you know, a cheerleader in, in, in some ways for, for all these guys. And it's, um, you're just so deeply invested in, in that pick and the time that went into it um, and, and just the process and you want to see them uh, succeed as much as anybody. So, um, you know, I think, you know, whether it's texting with the, the players themselves, sometimes their parents, um, you know, it's that line of communication with them uh, never ends. Well, you, you know, speaking about being a proud parent, you had two of your draft picks for the Cubs reach the major leagues <laughs> in 2023. You had fourth round pick Luke Little from 2020 and 2021 first round pick Jordan Wicks get their de debuts this year. How excited was that, was that for you? And were you watching when they made their debut with the big club? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, I remember I was, uh, I was actually with my family um, watching uh, Jordan Wicks uh, uh, debut on TV. And, um, you know, I think that first, um, I, you know, I was traveling, I couldn't get there in person and you know, on a scouting trip and um, I'm, I'm seeing on TV and I'm, I'm in another room, I think, as that, you know, first inning is unfolding, um, you know, just just kind of sweating buckets and, uh, you know, not, not even really wanting to watch and just sort of listening to, I think, the, the announcers uh, talk about it. And I could, you know, just envision sort of, you know, his, his pitches you know, behave the way that, uh, you know, we'd seen him back when he was in college. And, um, you know, it, it got a little, uh, got a little tenuous there for, 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 for a few pitches. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, our scouts saw in, in, in Jordan and that, you know, I think is probably pretty clear to people now is, um, you know, this guy is as tough as it gets. And, uh, you know, he's not going to get phased by, um, you know, a few things not going his way. Um, and he's just going to, you know, keep rolling. And, and he did. Um, and it's, it's, it's looking back on it. I think, uh, um, that was one of the more memorable, memorable debuts I, I, I can remember, but, uh, yeah, I think I can speak for all the scouts, um, uh, that were part of that process that, uh, I, I feel like we all felt like uh, proud parents at, at, at that moment. Now, you guys took a gamble when you drafted Cade Horton as high as you did, especially, you know, he had missed some time with, you know, with, with Tommy John and, and, and now Cade Horton is in everybody's top three Cubs prospects. He's rated 26 in MLB pipelines, top 100. What gave you the confidence to draft Cade when you did? And maybe other people didn't think that that was the right pick at the spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I think one of the toughest things to do is kind of block out the noise during the draft of, um, you know, how famous this guy might be or how famous that guy might be or what's ex where he's expected to be taken. Um, and, you know, just sort of relying on, you know, the fact that that we believe we have the best information going to the draft and, and we're going to use that information regardless of whether it aligns with um, expected of us or not. Um, and so I think, 
you know, when you say gamble, um, I, I, I can understand, you know, sort of why you might say that, but at the same time, I think, um, you know, every pick has, has risk associated with it and, um, or some level of uncertainty. And, you know, that's not, that's always going to be the case, but I think our job is to assess that level of uncertainty relative to, um, you know, the, the potential reward. And in our estimation, when we viewed, when, when we look at the case of, you know, Kate Horton, um, you know, that risk reward profile, uh, was well worth the, um, was well worth the pick. Now you took Jackson Wiggins in the second round of the 23 draft. He missed his junior season um, at the university of Arkansas with some Tommy John surgery, but you were confident in making him the pick. What is, you know, when, when you, when you have a guy that's injured, but you've been scouting him enough because Tommy John surgery, to be honest, is pretty common nowadays, you know, mm-hmm. is that you feel comfortable at the time of being like, yeah, you know, these guys are going to come back and what we saw is worth the pick. Yes, I think uh, I think we feel comfortable that that Jackson's going to come back. He's he's already um, you know th- starting to throw some pens in Arizona. Um, you know, looks great physically. Has just been crushing it from a strength and conditioning standpoint. Um, and you know I think uh, while it's a while it's a disruptive surgery, no doubt. I think the reality is that you know the the science is there for you know players that that do return. Um, you know to to a uh, you know, an expected level. Uh, and when we, you know, saw Jackson prior to that, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was electric at times. And, you know, there's going to be some things that he's going to have to, to work through with, uh, you know, some of our, you know, experts in, in our pitching side, but, uh, um, you know, it's a combination of projection and electric stuff. And uh, that, you know, you don't, you know, that I don't think we probably would have gotten in that, that stage of the draft, uh, you know, had he, been healthy the the entire year. He's 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 a special kid. Uh, another special kid's James Triantos. He got a lot of attention in the Arizona Fall League this season. Mm-hmm. You draft him out of high school. He did okay in Myrtle Beach, where. But I've heard that, and other people have said that it's hard to hit in Pelican Park and the Carolina League in general. How hard is it to evaluate the progress of hitters at Myrtle Beach? And do you think Triantos is going to settle in one position, or is his versatility going to help him get to the majors? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think the hardest thing about evaluating a hitter in uh, where there's a park effect that really has sort of a run suppressing effect is um, what it does to the player mentally. Uh, you know, I think the the, the tools and, and the math is out there that you can make the adjustments on the performance um, and and consider sort of, um, you know, how, how this player might have done in a different environment. Um, but what, what I don't think you always – can assess very well is the extent to which a player might react to, you know, just really getting a hold of one and knowing that that ball's out in any other park and then having it, you know, the, the left footer be camped right out on, you know, under it, you know, 20 feet from the, the, the fence. And, um, you know, that's a little deflating, um, you know, as a hitter. And then, you know, do you adjust your stance as a, do you adjust your approach? Do you start swinging, you know, getting out, you know, swinging out of the zone? Um, you start, you know, incorporating an uppercut. You know, I think, there's just things that hitters do that, you know, because they're human, um, you know, when you're in an environment like that, that you might uh, not otherwise do. And so I think, yeah, we can, you know, normalize and, and have an equivalency for a player's stats there versus somewhere else. But I think the, the effect mentally is something that, you know, is, uh, is not always easy to, to assess, but uh, you know, with James, I mean, James, James can hit, you know, and, and, and James can, <laughs> you know, he, he, he controls the zone. 
Uh, you know, he has hits for a lot of contact. I mean, he can. Uh, we think damage is coming. I think you saw that in the Arizona Fall League. We've seen it um, in, in in spurts before. Um, you know, and I think the other thing was he was coming into this uh, that's uh, last year with a little bit banged up. Um, and you know, the kid's as tough as it gets, and so he's he's not gonna um, he's not gonna sit out. I mean, he did have a, a you know a minor uh, you know knee surgery that kept him out. Uh, uh, for, I want to say a month or so, but, uh, you know, he was, he had a few other things that he was banged up and probably compensating for. And, you know, once he sort of, I think hit his stride, we didn't really see that until the fall league. And, uh, I think that's more, um, that's more who we'll probably see in the, in the future is my guess. Now we talked a little bit about Cade Horton. You had another first round pick this year, Matt Shaw, who rocketed through the minors and between Horton and Shaw, they're, they're on the championship team for the Tennessee Smokies. Yeah. Uh, what go, you know, people are kind of freaking out. They're like, well, we don't need a third baseman. Matt Shaw can start. And I'm like, well, hold, hold the horses here a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. he, you know, he's just coming up. What goes into determining how fast a player advances through the minor leagues and how careful do you have to be not to rush them to the majors? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a player generally tells you, you know, when they're ready. And if, 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 you're sitting around a table debating whether so-and-so is ready. It probably means he's not uh, just based on, you know, the, um, you know, having done this for a little bit. And I think, um, you know, it's the same thing when you're promoting a guy up the ladder in the minor leagues, uh, you know, if they're just dominating the level and clearly playing, you know, consistently above, uh, above that level. Um, you know, I think you're probably doing the player a disservice and that's the way our, our player development operation, you know, looks at it. If you're not uh, just challenging them, um and you know so i think uh they generally tell you um as opposed to sort of us having to sort of sit back and say well is so-and-so ready or is he not and then you know there's the issue of well is there is there a place for him to play at the next level um you know is he going to get the consistent at bats um is he going to play where we need him to play defensively um so there's those things that factor into into it too um but i think you know matt forced our hand last year i mean you know when you come out and and do what you know he did um you know as much as you probably want to be conservative and 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 not just sort of you know uh you know rocket a guy through the system um you know he got to a point where we didn't really have a choice but to, to promote him which is a pretty good problem to have now sean horton college players we talked about james Tiranto as a high school player when you're talking about like the philosophy on a first round draft pick and you're deciding between a college and high school player, you know, do you think about the different timelines and growth as compared to like, say organizational needs? Um, so I think organizational needs uh, don't fact first and foremost is a player's development. Um, that's going to be, um, you know, put ahead of any sort of, organizational needs early on now when they're called up or when they're being considered for for a call up um you know the the major league team obviously that that's when needs really come into play um you know if we have a need for a you know a, a right fielder or a second baseman or or, or a you know left-handed leaning reliever um uh, you know that's i think where it gets a little tricky as well you know do we think this guy might be able to make this you know handle this position at the big league level because that's uh that's where we need because he's certainly not going to play here because this guy has it on lockdown um so i think throughout the you know the minor league progression you try to make it all about the player and then once it's time for that call up um i think it does you know inevitably become about some you know major league team needs 
And I think one thing that's tricky on, on our end is try to get out in front of that a little bit in the minor leagues. And, you know, if we see that sort of coming, we don't want to just be blindsided and say, oh, now we need a second baseman. This guy's never played second base in the minor leagues. And so I think that's where you start to see a little bit of the, you know, let's move this guy around and get him some reps here. Um, and, yeah, I think versatility is never a bad thing for players. I think that the modern game has showed that, uh, you know, the more versatile, versatile a player is, the more opportunities he's probably going to get to contribute in the major leagues. Now, how much did the uh, effect, did the use of the tacky ball at double A, they had a, a tackier ball this year. How, how difficult did it make that in evaluating players and their progressions, both the pitchers and the hitters? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there were, for, you know, I don't, I don't think it ended up, um, I don't think they ended up using it the entire season. So it was somewhat of a, I guess, an experiment, uh, you could say, where you could evaluate pre and post tack. Um, but yeah, I think, it, you know, did it enable pitchers to sort of rip a curveball a little bit harder um, and, and, and juice, you know, the, the, the spin rate potentially? Um, you know, did it uh, make it a little bit more difficult for uh, a hitter in some cases if, uh, you know, he's seen a little bit more bite or a little bit later break on this pitch? Um, or, you know, a little bit more, you know, quote unquote rise on, on, on a heater. I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I think, um, we did notice some, you know, some artifacts of, of, of that, but, uh, I also think it's probably something we won't know for, for a few years, uh, until we really, you know, continue to, to, to study the effects. But, um, um, yeah, I think that's something that, uh, um, you know, most likely did impact, you know, performance in, 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 in a few ways. Now, um, I heard Craig Council at CubsCon talking, and he talked a lot about prospects. He talked about how, you know, a lot of times people build these kids up, and then if they're not immediately successful, you know, and they go down the minors, you know, then they kind of get torn down a little bit. When, when a player makes it to the big leagues and they get a cup of coffee and it doesn't work out as much as they hoped it would, what, do you, what does the organization do to help them regain their confidence and address issues that may have been exploited in the big league level? Yeah, you know, I think some of that gets back to the players' makeup, and you know, trying even at the the you know the the level of the draft, and trying to just find those players that have that uh, stick to itiveness and 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 that ability to to manage stress and and overcome adversity, and um, you know, sometimes players you know have those qualities naturally. Sometimes uh, you know they learn like coping mechanisms and strategies later on through you know our mental skills or through outside uh, means. Um, but I think it, you know, you need, um, players that, uh, you know, can kind of overcome that. And I think, um, you know, look at a, a guy like Matt Mervis last year, you know, he, uh, wasn't, uh, you know, I think he was like a lot of players that, uh, uh, you know, with a lot of talent and, and skill that are probably going to be really good big leaguers, uh, you know, like I think he's going to be, um, you know, that get up there and don't experience that initial success. And then have to go back down and still perform. And he, he went back down and, and continued to rake. Um, so I think, you know, you, you got to be mentally tough like that. Um, but at the same time, I think it's something where, you know, you, it helps to, you know, be able to have some patience and be able to sort of come back down, regroup, and then get a chance to go back up there. So, you know, the player also needs opportunities. 
Well, Dan, I appreciate you taking some of your time. I know you are a traveling Roman man and and, and you're always a busy man, but I love having these conversations with you and just kind of pulling back the curtain a little bit and, and getting an idea because it's fun to watch these young kids. It's fun to watch their development. And I think the Cubs organization and a lot, like you said, a lot of third-party evaluators think you guys are just doing a terrific job. And I appreciate uh, all that you guys are doing and for taking some time to talk to us today. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate you having me on. Take care. You are listening to the Fly the W670 podcast, and we are under 50 days until opening day. It's episode 12 of season three. Don't forget to leave Crowley and I a five-star review. Don't forget to listen. Don't forget to download. Of course, we want you to subscribe to the Fly the W podcast. Crowley, the hot stove news is very, very quiet, and uh, we are less than a week away from pitchers and catchers reporting to Arizona or Florida. Of course, the Cubs are going out to Arizona, like you. Yes, sir. The Cubs made a few minor moves. All they did was officially announce the three pitchers that they signed to minor league contracts with an invite to Major League Spring Training. Former Cub Carl Edwards Jr., right-handed pitcher Sam McWilliams, and and the greatest name of all time. I may have to get this on a jersey. Left-handed pitcher Richard Lovelady. Lovelady. McWilliams was out of the game for one and a half years, but he did well in winter ball in the Mexican and Dominican League, so the Cubs are going to take a flyer. Richard Lovelady impressed the Cubs during a session at driveline. The other move the Cubs made was trading Michael Rucker to the Phillies for cash considerations. But Dustin, around the league, you know, a couple of big moves. Clayton Kershaw re-signed with the Dodgers. We don't know. We don't have the exact dollar figures yet, but the deal is for the 2024 season with a player option for 2025. How about Jose Altuve? He's going to finish his career with the Astros, agreeing to five years, $125 million extension. That's going to keep him in Houston until 2029. And the other big one, how about uh, what the Royals did with Blake DeWitt? I mean, that is absolutely unbelievable. An 11-year extension, he's going to be making $288 million. And for the Royals, that's the largest contract in team history there's multiple opt-outs and uh, if he doesn't exercise any of those the, the you know the royals would receive a three-year option after the 2034 campaign but for a small market team that's a that's a big move yeah it's a huge move and i believe they they have spent more money than anybody else this offseason correct it, it's up there. They're up there. And then when you look I mean, at some it, of or maybe, teams, maybe not other, maybe in the American league, maybe it's the American league, probably not more than the Dodgers, but maybe in the American league. Yeah. hundred percent. I think it is in the American league that they've spent the most. So, Hey, you know what? Good on the Royals, man. They, 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 they're making moves. And I think that, that that's going to really, um, really help them out in the long run. Now the Cubs did release their coaching staff in the minor leagues. We'll talk a little bit more with all the guys from Iowa and Tennessee and South Bend and Myrtle Beach, but uh, some interesting moves here. Marty Peavy returns for his 12th season as manager of the Iowa Cubs. The defending champion, Tennessee Smokies, get a new manager, Lance Rimmel, who guided South Bend to a championship in 2022. Dustin, I met Lance a couple times and Here's what I'm going to tell you. This is a guy that you really want to kind of circle the name and and maybe I'm going to write something down after this to come back to. I think this guy is going to be a much sought after managerial candidate in the future. I think this guy's future is really bright. So just something to watch to see how he does now moving up to double A. That means there's an opening 
in South Bend. Nick Lavolo will uh, take over. He coached the uh, Arizona Complex League Cubs. And then, Dustin, an institution. Buddy Bailey is returning to manage the Myrtle Beach Pelicans in his 36th season as a minor league manager. Dustin Bailey has 2,355 regular season victories. It is the most among minor league active minor league managers and third all time. That's pretty good. <laughs> that also means what? He's been around for quite some time, right? I, my, my, my goal is to get Buddy Bailey on this podcast. That, that is my goal for 2024. Um, All right, let's make it happen. I'm for it. Now, another guy that would be fun to have on the podcast, how about John Lester? Interviewed yeah, he would be, he would be fun. He, <laughs> he can be crotchety, but when you get him talking baseball, he's pretty damn good. Well, you know what? I got a whole stocked bar here. He can come down here. We could have a couple of beers and, and, and tell some stories. But uh, he did talk to uh, Odyssey Insider and USA Today columnist Bob Nightingale. And I thought this was interesting, Dustin. Nightingale wrote that Lester still feels closer to the Cubs than the Red Sox with friends still working in the organization but he concedes his passion towards the Cubs has slightly waned with the firing of manager David Ross, his former teammate and close friends. Talking to people, I understand. I saw Rossi over New Year's and kind of understood their decision, but you don't want their, your buddies to lose their job. It sucks. It kind of stung. So, I mean, a lot of that was surprising. He's closer to the Cubs than the Red Sox. I mean, how many guys are still left on the team that yeah, but I wonder now that Theo's back, over. you know, in a real role with the Red Sox, if that changes things too. Yeah, you 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 have Theo over there, and, and you know our former pitch director that he was close with went over there to take over yep. as GM. So you know there, there there's a lot of things, but it was well, obviously him and him and him and you know obviously him and David Ross were super tight. I mean, the reason David Ross was on the Cubs is because John Lester was on the Cubs. Absolutely. So we'll we'll. We'll see how it happens. And, 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 you know, Nightingale mentioned that he wanted to go to a couple spring training games. So I'm hoping, you know, like, like, like just like that I get a sighting of John Lester at Mesa. <laughs> I'll be looking, man. I, you know, I'm going to be looking. You'll be looking. You'll be now, looking. Dustin, we know that Crane Kenny talked on the score with David Haw about this previously, and it has been made official. Connor Bedard making the announcement live at Wrigley Field. The Cubs put out a promo video. Wrigley Field was chosen to host the NHL Winter Classic in 2025 as the Blackhawks will take on the St. Louis Blues. Second time that Wrigley has hosted the Winter Classic, the first, Dustin, all the way back in 2009. How interested are you in going to that game? Um, I like it, but I thought of you when this first came out, and I thought of me, and you have told myself and our great listening audience how wonderful the Cubs winter wonderland and the Kris Kringle market and all that stuff are. And you were right. And we celebrated my daughter's birthday there with a couple of her friends and had a great family afternoon at Wrigley field. And I'm worried that with this game, that that will not be the same next year. They, if any, I, I don't, it'll be an abbreviated version at best. And they might have to, they may have to cancel the whole thing altogether because the NHL is going to come in there and make sure that thing is, buttoned up because that for a uh, lack of a better term is almost the NHL Super Bowl, if you will, that outdoor winter classic. So there's a lot of eyes on it, you know, NBC, TNT, Turner, who's ever going to have the rights to that game. So I wonder if that's going to get in the way of our uh, ice skating on Wrigley Field. Yeah, it, it's going to be interesting. 
interesting. I, I would say that, you know, this year they closed the Winterland a week before Cubs convention. So right around the first week of January, I think is when they closed it up. Yeah, but this um, game is typically played on New Year's Day. Now, they might not play it on New Year's Day this year because it's a packed sports calendar and they look to try to get in a space where they kind of can own part of the day. But it's going to be extra crowded because college football is going to that 12-team playoff. So there'll be a couple of games, not just one game necessarily. There'll be a handful of games on that day. So it's going to be interesting. They, they haven't they haven't said exactly. There is no date yet. There, it, it is in January of twenty five. That that we know. It's against the Blues. That we know. But it, it's not. It has not been announced that it's January first. And I'm, you know, listen. We went we went to Winter Wonderfest on the twenty seventh of December. So you're not going to be able to take Winter Wonderfest down and put up a rink and seating and this and that and a state, you're not going to be able to do it in two, three days. So right. I, I really wonder, like, I mean, I don't know that you could have that thing open like much past the second week of December. So maybe you hmm. go Thanksgiving. I did. I'm just, I'm very curious if, if the Cubs are going to announce like that, that's going to, they're going to take a year off because of this. It'll and be then, interesting. You know, I, I just wonder, I, I, you know, and then maybe somebody's smart enough. I mean, you're, you're trying to fit, you know, or would the Sox be smart enough to try to do something like that? Would, would Soldier Field do something like that? Um, we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, the Soldier Field is going to have the Bears. Um, as far as the White Sox, I don't know. But it's been about, what, 16 years since they had one. So maybe they will, like I said, maybe they'll go from Thanksgiving to Christmas and then shut it down. And like you said, if they're able to have a week to do it, maybe that might be enough. Maybe a week but- a week might be enough. But I, I it, it won't be the same as it was this past year. That That, I think, is very safe to say. Yes, sir. Now, Dustin, two things came out very recently, and we're going to talk more about the next episode so make sure you're tuning in because we're going to have Pakoda and we are going to have Cubs giveaways I'm getting giddy about this next episode <laughs> I knew when I saw the tweet about the uh, uh, what's coming out and the, the promotional calendar I got an email I texted with you about that we need a little bit more time but right now Crowley that's a wrap don't forget to listen download review and subscribe to the fly the W podcast follow on all the socials Facebook, Instagram. Don't forget, you can email us, flythew670 at gmail.com. Email us, and Crowley and I may answer your email right here on the pod. And now you can watch us. That's right, we're on YouTube by subscribing to the 670 to score YouTube channel. Dustin, we're, we're almost there. The countdown's beginning. Go Cubs! It's all over. <laughs> <laughs>